an example came to mind that, that we had in Israel a few times ago um, when some families had come and, and we went and we were on a hillside uh, in Israel walking up the hill and the guide and I had stopped to talk about something and, and the rest of the group just kept walking. And there were three options for going up this mountain and they picked one and started going. It wasn't the right one. Um, but they were just going, and in Israel, none of them had ever been there. None of them had any idea where they were or where they were going. But one person picked and started walking, and everybody else, like sheep that we are, just starts following along right behind them. And the guide and I are sitting there, and we, at some point I go, how long should we let them go? Like, should we let them just wander all the way, like over the mountain, down into the valley? Like, what? how far should we let them go before we call after them? Like, yeah, you're going the wrong way. That's, that's not the direction you need to be going. I think there's something to that when we, when we decide, okay, no, I get this now. I've got the pattern. I see how this is going to play out. I don't need you anymore. I'm going, to, I'm going to just keep going in the direction. This direction looks good to me. It makes sense to me. But that's more of a mindset. And the more I dug into this and the more I looked, just really thought about it and asked about it and prayed about it, the less I was able to connect some kind of behavior to this. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But it seems like, in fact, when you study Scripture, that waiting sometimes is just another word for trusting. That waiting on the Lord and trusting in the Lord are almost the same concept. When Grant and I were talking, he said that in recent things he had just thought that security, hoping, trusting, and waiting all seemed like the same concept in the Bible. And it all had to do with depending on Him. And so does this Advent theme, the Advent theme today of love, fits into that as well. We'll come back to it a few times, but... I think love is, is really what love is, and I like to, those of you who know me well know, I like to really define these words um, down very carefully so that we can look at our own lives and say, okay, when I look at my behavior, when I look at my actions, when I look at my mindsets, am I doing this? Am I experiencing joy? Am I um, experiencing hope? Do I love and am I being loved? I think love is defined as the willingness to appropriately sacrifice to help bring about God's best in the life of another Say it again. Willing to appropriately sacrifice to help bring about God's best in the life of another. And I think trust is largely the question, do I believe this about God? Do I believe that God is willing to sacrifice appropriately to bring about His best in my life? So much of what Advent is, is the recognition that that's exactly what He did, is that He was willing to sacrifice um, in such a way as to bring about his best in my life. He sent his son. Jesus came and experienced life as a man with all the, the horrible things that that can in, in, uh, indicate. And yet, still including especially the death on a cross and the torturous death. And he did that in an effort to bring about his best for me. So, when I think about that, is he really willing to do that? Or am I working against him? Am I working with him? Or is that phrase that Grant used implies as if he wasn't there, that I get out ahead of him, meaning I no longer feel like I need him. I'm, I'm, now, I'm now waiting as though there is no God. It's a practical agnosticism. The way I wait is, looks pretty much the same as the way I would wait if I didn't believe there was a God. It seems like when I wrestle with this, it seems like if I put too much of me into the formula I end up not trusting or not waiting. But if I put too little of me in the formula, it feels like now I'm testing God. That if I don't do some of the things that I'm supposed to be doing, like the example of the student who prays to make an A on the test they didn't study for, right? 
That that is that trust, is that waiting? Well, that doesn't seem like very good waiting. Seems like there was something that, that that student needed to do in the process of waiting before the time came to act. And so, and so as we wrestle with these concepts, and they're not easy, and again, like I said, there's no simple behavioral modification tool. That would be nice. If I could just say, like, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, I'd like to have that for myself so that I could do that. But it seems more like a mindset, a heart set even. Is this what God wants for me? Is this what He has for me? Or is this what I want for me, and am I, what am I willing to do to get it? And if I'm doing something in a way that, that God has forbidden, then apparently I'm certainly not waiting on Him and not trusting in Him. Is it a sin to act or not act? And in this, I run into this regularly when I'm doing marriage counseling, especially in the case of infidelity. Is it very often what you will hear on the, on the behalf of the person who has done the cheating, who has committed the adultery, who has been unfaithful, is that they will talk about it in terms of how the spouse failed them. Like the spouse was supposed to do this or should have done that or, or should have done more of this, and because they didn't, because the provision of them was not sufficient, I went out and found my own provision. It's a great example of not waiting on the Lord. There's a work to be done there, investing in the marriage, working on the marriage, drawing nearer to Christ in the midst of that relationship. There's a work that is clearly not waiting on the Lord to begin to initiate and engage in an adulterous affair. That would certainly be not waiting on the Lord. But very often people talk in those terms. Well, if I had had what I was looking for somewhere else, then I, I wouldn't have sought it out someplace else. So I can't really be blamed for that. Sure you can. Your failure to wait upon the Lord or to do things His way is exa exactly what we're talking about with this. Do you trust that He knows what He's doing? Do you trust that he has your best at heart? If you had God's provision hasn't arrived, then it's still time to wait. So the question then becomes, what do I do while I wait? How do I grow closer? How am I more prepared? And this is what struck me for today's conversation is, how do I prepare for when it comes time to stop waiting? Seems to me like that's one of the main roles of waiting, is to be preparing for when the day comes when it's time to stop waiting. So let's look about this. Um, the mindfulness of waiting, it causes us to focus in on who God is, on what He has and what He's given us. Well, we have to wait, especially when we have to, we're forced to wait or we're in a situation to wait. I think some of the disciplines, some of the spiritual disciplines, where really when you think about, think about how many of the spiritual disciplines, prayer and fasting and silence and isolation and memorizing Scripture and things like that, think about how many of those have a, a really strong aspect to the concept of waiting that we're waiting to eat or we're waiting to act or we're waiting in some way, it causes us to trust. Those are, that's an advantage of waiting. Hopefully we get better at watching and listening. We'll talk about that more in a minute as well. But when we talked about Simeon, the watching and the listening, maybe there's character development that can happen in the midst of that. Um, delayed gratification is an important skill set. We need to be good at that. Our children need to learn how to wait um, because if they get everything they want when they want it, then, then they miss out on the, on the joys and the pleasure of delayed gratification, the increased enjoyment, the learning patience, an awareness, a listening. And then this one is the main focus today, a preparation. Waiting represents a time to prepare. So, for example, we'll talk about next week how God is being patient um, before He returns. Some people think they're getting impatient, they're getting tired of waiting, but the truth is He's taking His time so that everyone who can get to know Him will. 
Um, we'll talk about that next week. Give us time. It gives us time to develop and practice skills that we may need later. So you, some of you know that I, I distinguish, just for my own sake, between bravery and courage this way. Bravery is, is doing something or seeking to do something that you're afraid of because you're afraid of it. Like, I'm afraid of this, and so I'm going to seek this out and do this thing that I'm afraid of. Courage is doing something you're afraid of because it's right, because it's morally right to do it. And you believe it's morally right to do it. So you say, this is the right thing to do, so I'm going to go do it, but I'm afraid. Courage is what would push you through to do that. But notice how bravery is good practice for courage. Bravery, when we seek out things that we're afraid of in order to learn to do them or to practice them or to push through, it gives us the skill sets for courage. (laughs) So you've heard me say before that I'm afraid of really big things in the water, Um, especially really big moving things in the water. And in murky water, it's even worse. Yep, there's a name for this, but um, it's even worse than my fear of being bored. So I intentionally went out and got licensed to do scuba diving so I can go scuba dive and be around big things underwater because it scares me. Um, it scares me every time, every time I go down there, and I have to practice uh, good breathing, which you have to do anyway with those things, but, but keeping my heart rate slowed down and, and being willing to go do things, and so that, that when they say, hey, come, come when, when the dive master's you know, becking us over to come look under a rock, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to see what's down there. I know it's big or he wouldn't be caught, especially when he's 10 feet from it, pointing at it like, it's going to be some big thing, don't make, and so the decision, okay, nope, I'm going to go over and look at it. This is, this is so that when the day comes, when it's the right thing to do to face a fear, I'll have practiced facing fears. Does that make sense? That's, I think, a version of waiting. I'm waiting for the day when it's the real thing is there. Practicing, rehearsing, if you will. So much of what waiting about is like that. Um, an author who I, I re- regularly recommend is a lady named Patsy Claremont. I think we had a picture of her. Uh, Patsy Claremont's been writing for a long time, and she, um, she writes mostly for women, and she writes some really great stuff. Her first book, God Uses Cracked Pots, is one of my favorites. Um, it's, a, it's really well written, and she's a great speaker, but she talks about how very often what reveals the Lord in our lives is when we have to develop in an area that we're not very good at. And so she talks for specifically about the example of if you're, if you're one of those people who talks all the time, then learning to shut your mouth is an indication of God's reality in your life. That if you're someone who talks all the time, that when, when you are quiet, people realize there is a God, right? <laughs> and she said, on the other hand, if you're one of those people who never talks, who stays quiet, that, that you're, for you, the practice of trusting in the Lord is to speak. And as she says, when you speak, people will realize the Lord lives, and so does she, right? That this is, this is a way of indicating God's teaching me something. I can do things in trust that I wouldn't normally do. This is one of the advantages of waiting is it gives us time to grow up a little bit. It gives us time to, to, to develop our character a little bit. And it helps us to, um, if we're wise, to prepare. 1 Peter 3, 14 to 16 says this, and you'll remember this just from a few months ago, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So the question is, 
are you more prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within you? Very often when we teach on these things, people will say, well, I, don't, I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know how to answer questions. I wouldn't know what to do with that. I mean, okay, that's not enough of a reason not to do it, but I'm curious, are you more prepared to answer those questions today than you were last year? I'm curious if you say, well, I don't, I don't know how to communicate with my teenage grandchildren. Oh, well, you're going to see them in a few days. Are you more prepared to talk with them than you were last Christmas? Because if you're not, you've not waited very well. If you're not more prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within you, you've not waited very well in the meantime between people asking for the reason for the hope that's within you. This is one of the purposes of waiting is to prepare. If we weren't ready the first time around, how about now? If we get blindsided by a question we can't answer it, are we now preparing to answer it? I tell people, I encourage people when I disciple them that they need to read a marriage and family book, a marriage book and or a parenting book, or both is better, every year. At least one a year, starting at age 16. Some of you are way behind. Why would we not? It's amazing to me to hear people come in and say, I want to be married someday, I want to have a spouse someday. And I ask them, how many marriage books have you read? None. So in other words, you're just... You're really hoping that someone is willing to marry someone who's radically unprepared to be married. That's what you're hoping for. Someone's going to have mercy on you and marry you even though you don't know anything about being married. A really great idea, a great, really great thing to do while you're waiting would be to become an expert in this. Learn what this means and how to do this. Be good at it. You're wait, I'm waiting on having a kid. Okay, good, excellent. I can, we talked about that quite a bit with Elizabeth. Are you preparing to have a kid though? I mean, are you learning about what it's like to be a parent in the meantime? So if you're, if you're hoping to be married someday and you're no more prepared to be married this year than you were last year, then you're not, being, you're not waiting very well. This is a part of what waiting is all about. Um, I said, if, if, if persecution is coming, are you more ready for it than you were in 2019? Are you more ready for a pandemic than you were in 2019? If you're not more ready for a pandemic than you were in 2019, you're not waiting very well. In fact, I would say at this point, you're not just bad at it, you're delusional, right? If you're not ready, you go, if you go are you ready for Snowpocalypse 2022? Are you ready for your power and your water to be out for four or five days this year? No? No more ready than you were when it happened last year? That's incredible that we would do that. You're waiting poorly. You should be preparing for the truth and the reality of the situation that we're in. That's part of waiting is preparing right? Consider the ant, thou sluggard, right? Look at how it works and stores up. You're not thinking along those terms. They wait really well. They take care of things while they're waiting. While we wait, we prepare. One of the, I was reading a, a prepper mindset book at one point that was, it cracked me up <coughs> as it kind of thumped me in the head when it, the, the guy was laughing at the fact that there are people who will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars creating a, you know, buying up food and ammunition and all that kind of stuff, but they can't walk home. They're in such bad shape that they ha they're counting on the fact that everything's going everything's gonna to fall apart while they're sitting in their living room. Because if it happens while they're at work, somebody else is getting all that stuff. They're going to have a heart attack trying to walk home. This was a great mindset. Like, that's a great way of thinking. You're not preparing well. You're not waiting well if you're not taking these things. And while we wait, we prepare. And I do have a Christmas story um, that goes with that. And it's we're, not that one. Not that one. That's a good one, too, but not that one. Today, we're looking instead 
Uh, it seems like so much, by the way, so much of, have y'all noticed this in the last few years? So much of the last few years have been dismantling misunderstandings about the nativity. Like we've been, it seems like we've been doing that for about 10 or 20 years now, is going, this nativity set that we've got up and we all look at it and we're like, this is really sweet and it's wonderful. It's essentially all wrong, right? It kind of hurts my feelings a little bit, but it's, a, it's really painful for us sometimes to dig into these. But here's what I found. Um, uh, we're doing a podcast through the church called the Deconstructed Faith Podcast. And we actually, I don't know when it will hit, but at some point we deconstructed Christmas. And when you, when you deconstruct something, what we discovered is when you deconstruct something, which is healthy, all humans need to be deconstructing things, but you're not done when you just deconstruct, right? I mean, all the, all the, the, the home TV shows would not be all that interesting if that only had the dismantling section, and then they were done, right? That's, that's either cowardly or lazy to just deconstruct. What are you now going to build in its place? What are you going to reconstruct? And so often what we find is when we deconstruct something false, what we find in the rubble is stuff that's even better. That's much better, and it's really fun to do that. So when we ask ourselves these questions, like over the last few weeks, we've looked at some of these. How should the English phrase, no room at the inn, for example, be understood in the context of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? Even simple things like, what did a first century manger look like? What types of things might fulfill the understanding of a, quote, stable in that era? We've talked about these just over the last few weeks. And today I want to dive into who the three kings from the Orient are, right? So aside from the fact that we don't know how many of them there were, that they weren't kings and they weren't from the Orient, this is dead on, right? <laughs> um, uh, this is one of those fun ones. There's so many misconceptions about these guys, and we're going to unpack them because I think they kind of deserve waiting championships. Um, who they represent and who they are. And you could get too carried away with this. Listen, I, I know that. Um, you get too carried away um, with what their names are and were they kings and what does it mean that they were magicians and did they come to the manger scene or did they come to the house, um, how many of them were there um, and all that kind of stuff. And, and some of that stuff's fascinating to study and dig into. Um, Alistair Begg, if you've never heard of Alistair Begg, I think I actually have a picture of Alistair as well. Did I have that in the notes? Yeah. So Alistair Begg, who's a preacher and a commentator um, and, uh, and most importantly, Scottish he, um, when, he, when he does the teaching, scriptural teaching, there's a lot of great stuff. And he said he found himself, I, I, read, I listened to one of his sermons on the wise men, and he got all caught up a little bit in this debate that was going on, I think at a seminary, about some really infinitesimally tiny fine point about the wise men. And he said, as he said, as he's sitting there <laughs> listening to this, at some point he, he realizes, he's thinking, who cares? Like, who cares about this? Like, why, why, are, why are we unpacking this to this? Does it change anything really? And he said, it, it feels like sometimes what happens is we dive into some of these details and then we miss the big picture now for the sake of the details. And the nativity does a fun job of giving us the big picture. Too much digging, too many distractions. His opinion is that we should understand the wise men, and I agree with this, as theological scientists or scientific theologians, if you prefer. Remember that it's only been about 150 years that the concept of theology and science have been divided out. For most of human history, theology and science were, were closely intertwined. And it's actually been relatively recently that those two things, have that, that they require some type of division. Don't, let, let's us not fall into that mindset, as if the study of truth is somehow in competition with the study of truth. It's not. But as we deconstruct and reconstruct, here's another great example of them, who they were. One aspect of waiting turned out to be powerfully exemplified in their story. So, 
We start our story a thousand miles away from, from Bethlehem. And then we come to Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, so who are they? Here's my opinion. The, the Persian word for priest is as close as we can get to this idea of wise men. Students of the Hebrew scriptures that had been probably in Persia from the time of Daniel. Remember Daniel? Daniel chapter 2, verse 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. Remember these guys, the magicians. The word there just means users of pens or fixers of internets. That's the other thing that that means. Uh, people who can fix the internet. Those are magicians. These are, these are those who have special knowledge. They're the, they're the people who figure stuff out. The enchanters. Um, the whisperers is the word that's used there. In fact, the word for them is ashephim. It sounds like a whisper, ashephim, right? And so they're the whispers, the enchanters. They, they're constantly talking. The sorcerers, people who offer prayers. The Chaldeans, the astrologers, the priestly class who study the cosmic forces, study dreams, religious texts, and the skies. So I, I want to let you guys know something if you don't know this already. And, and I hate to be the one to break this to you. Stars have no impact on your life. The way the stars are organized from Earth's perspective has no impact on your life. If, it's, I'm shocked every year that I read a study about you know, how many Christians are still involved in, in horoscopes, for example. If you've got time to read your horoscope, may I recommend a Bible study? <laughs> Anyone would do. Any devotional will be a huge improvement over any horoscope. The stars do not influence us. And, the, and especially, I love the egocentric mindset that the way they would be aligned from compared to earth is going to somehow dictate all things as if we're the center of the universe, right? However, that being said, you have to remember, and many of you know, that, that from this era, stars were seen as interchangeable concepts with spiritual beings. That the spiritual beings were the stars, and the stars were the spiritual beings, that they exemplified and identified one another. And spiritual beings certainly do have an impact on our lives. And God uses these spiritual beings sometimes in the presence of stars to teach us things and show us things. When he wants to explain to Job how powerful he is, when Job asks, show me how powerful you are, where God sends him is to look to the stars. So it's not that they're insignificant. It's just they're just not deciding whether or not you should play the lottery today. These stars, these, these men, the star these men come to follow, do, it ends up doing things that stars don't do, can't do. And so I think I agree that there's something supernatural going on here. So keep in mind Daniel, remember Daniel, Daniel was the leader of these four groups for decades, maybe 60 years. And imagine, you imagine at a college if you had a professor who became the head of all of the university for 60 years, writing curriculum, developing textbooks, teaching, they would impact that school for generations to come. And in fact, in probably about the 15 generations of students and teachers since the time of Daniel, Apparently, his teaching was still followed, was still listened to. He had a grand and long-lasting impact on the generations of Persian theological scientists. So what does waiting have to do with this? Well, he was doing it in around 600 B.C. So if you do the math in your head of how long they've been waiting, 600 B.C., 
By the way, if you came up with 400, you still don't understand A.D. and B.C. very well. Um, it's 600, 600 years from the time of 600 B.C. to around the birth of Christ, right? These guys were the waiting champs. Remember Daniel in uh, 2, he has a dream about a statue with a head of gold, shoulders of silver, waist of bronze, legs of iron, feet of cl- married clay and iron, and then action is brought into the dream. For generations, these scientists had been watching the world follow this pattern exactly like Daniel had said it would. Going, this, one, this kingdom will rise and then fall, and this one will rise and it will fall, and this one will rise up, and it's risen up, and this kingdom of iron has risen up. And the whole, all these other kingdoms are all standing around. And a final kingdom that will never be destroyed is going to show up then, Daniel 2, 44-45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, and shall bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So how did they know if they were studying these prophecies, these ancient prophecies, these ancient Hebrew prophecies that, that Daniel had probably written textbooks about and had trained them all in, where did they get the idea of looking for a star? Interestingly, this probably comes from one of the prophecies of Balaam. You remember Balaam? Balaam, back in the time of Moses, when Moses and the people are wandering around, and they're starting to come towards the promised land, one of the kings hired a prophet to come curse the people of Israel, a guy named Balaam. And Balaam has a few interesting experiences. One is that his donkey talks to him at one point. It's an interesting experience to have. Another one is that every time he stands up to curse the Jewish people, blessings come out of his mouth instead. He's a true prophet. He literally is being paid to curse them. He gets up on a high hill. He overlooks the people of Israel. He opens his mouth, clears his throat, and begins to speak. And what comes out are blessings, even though he intends to curse them. One of those goes like this. And he took up the discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down on his, with his eyes uncovered. Get a pretty high opinion of yourself, doesn't he? Balaam. Verse 17 starts with this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come up out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. In other words, a kingdom is coming. A king is coming, and a star is going to be the sign of this. And so they've been watching for 600 years for this to happen. How have they been waiting? There's yet another picture of waiting that I've not used until now. This is waiting. It's a special kind of waiting. This is waiting, coiled for action, ready to act. When the time when waiting is over, this is someone who's ready. They're ready to act, but they're waiting. They're waiting for something to happen. And when that something happens, they're prepared. They've trained. Everything about their life comes down to the sound of that starting gun. And these men had been waiting and waiting and waiting for 600 years. And it wasn't just out of fear, but love. Love, as as a runner loves to run, the way that a bridegroom loves to see his bride. When I do a wedding, some of you have gotten to experience this with me. I'm sitting up, standing up near the front with the groom, and I warn them in advance, I'm really going to be watching you. And I'm going to be probably saying funny things to you. 
and trying to make you laugh and, and to kind of, because at that moment you will be more nervous than you've ever been at any other time in your life. When you're standing up, from the time you and I stand up there in front of all those people and we just stand up there looking awkwardly at them and they look awkwardly at us, until, from that moment until that door opens in the back, you're going to be terrified. And the chances of you locking up your knees and passing out are too high for me. So I'm going to be watching, I'm going to be watching you and, and engaging with you and talking with you and making sure you're breathing and things like that. And then this door is going to open in the back and your bride is going to come in and I'm not going to have to worry about you anymore because then you're going to be fine. At that moment, all the anxiety and all the fear and all the panic and everything is just going to go away. Just whoosh, gone. And so this is, this is that kind of waiting. It's an anticipation. It's a, it's, a, it's a waiting on the blocks. When do I get to go? Of course, our lives are more complex than that. Some part of our lives are waiting and some of our lives are sprinting. But back to the passage. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Again, the chief priests and the scribes. I actually actually think this story is meant to connect the coming of Jesus to Daniel. Very intentionally meant to do that. So again, we have these same people. Thinking back a few years they're thinking, they're remembering when some shepherds were running around claiming to have run into angels, something about a baby with all this lamb imagery, all this word got around, kind of died off after a while. Now these men show up asking questions and Herod has to be asked where the Christ was born. He has to ask. So they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Immediate question I had was why didn't the wise men know where Jesus was going to be born? Why'd they go to Jerusalem? I think they did know where Jesus was supposed to be born, and I think they knew it was supposed to be in Bethlehem. But this is probably at least two years after the birth of Jesus, and they naturally assume this royal child must be in the capital by now. I mean, surely, surely they've gotten this child, this new king, this king who's going to start a kingdom that will never end, that will crush all the other kingdoms and overwhelm them all. Surely by now, he's in the capital city. So they show up and they go, so where is he? And Herod says, where's who? And they go, what do you mean, where's who? The, the star? The prophecy? What do you mean, where's who? The king? who's going to change everything, the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, and you're asking us, where's who? Are you talking, can you imagine looking around at all the Jewish scribes and the Jewish Pharisees and going, well, I mean, it, none of you caught this. Not one of you. We're the ones who caught this. Herod, on the other hand, does not know where the Christ was to be born. The king of the Jews has no idea where the king of the Jews is supposed to be born. He's a worried and classically paranoid man. He had already killed several family members who he thought posed a threat. His supporters are unhappy because he's unhappy. His enemies are unhappy because when Herod gets unhappy, people die. So Herod pulls a little, he's he's got a little scheme. This is is such a, he's such the villain, right? You almost picture him with the little curly mustaches or something. So Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Again, here's the key to Simeon's lesson on waiting. They were watching and listening, and Herod wasn't. We talked about how Herod was right there when Jesus was there to see Simeon. Herod was within two miles, maybe within a few hundred feet. They didn't miss it, but Herod did. What star? When did it appear? What does it mean? 
They tell him and he tries to manipulate these foreign scholars because they don't see through his evil plans. Verse 18, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring him to me that I too may come worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star they had seen when it rose before them, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Like I said, I know there's a lot of opinions about the nature of this star. But remember, we've talked about how the people of this era and this time intermixed the concepts of star and spiritual being. Whether there was an alignment of planets or not around this time, when the star leads them to a specific child in a specific house, it's certainly not, at this point, merely a distant ball of exploding gases. I personally think that maybe it had vanished after it originally appeared, and maybe that was some kind of more natural occurrence, and now it was reappearing when they needed it to lead them to the house, and it does. So they, they are excited when they see it. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. How about that? What a strange experience this, thing has all been, this whole thing has been for Mary. They go in and they meet with Simeon and Anna who have these great words to say. And yet there's always this like, oh, and a sword's going to pierce your heart. There's always something like that. Can you imagine Mary's just sitting there in Bethlehem in someone's house and all of a sudden Prince Ali shows up with his big parade going down the middle of the street singing and dancing and all these things and, and here come these, these professors and theologians and they come walking into the house and they kneel down and worship the two-year-old, a toddler. I mean, toddlers are okay with being worshipped, all of them. They all think they're God. But, but in this case, they really do this. And here's what, what I love about them. Then they opened their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And here it is. This is the main point I wanted to make today from the wise men. The wise men had been waiting for generations for a star to appear. And when it did, they were ready. They were ready to act. They were prepared. One key purpose of waiting is preparing for the moment when the waiting is over. While they waited, they had studied and they got it right, and they knew what they wanted to do. They knew what they wanted to do for this new king, and they knew what Christmas presents to bring him. And they knew the scriptures. They knew who they were coming to see. Here's a question that struck me this week, and I don't even know where I heard it. But when I heard it, I wrote it down and, and realized this is it. They had read the Bible. They had read God's Word. They had read these holy scriptures for themselves. Here's the question that struck me. If you don't read your Bible, how do you know you're not part of a cult? How do you know? I mean, if you just come here and listen to what someone says about it, how do you know that I'm not just a cult leader and you're not part of a cult? If you, how do you know that, you're, that the, the teachers that you have aren't just people within the cult and that we're all brainwashed and we're following some cult? How do you know that if you don't read God's Word yourself and study it yourself? And I, what I would submit to you is you don't. If you just go somewhere and let a human being tell you what God says and that's all your input you've got from God, you're certainly open to being part of a cult. These guys had studied it themselves. They had dug into it. They had, they had found out what it says. They knew that passage from Numbers 24, I'm sure. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. They see the star. They know the scepter has arisen. But they also knew that this was a king. I, like Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, and a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So knowing they're coming to see a king, they bring gold. Makes sense. 
<clears throat> they know they're coming to see a priest, maybe from the Psalms. Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A lot to unpack there that we don't have time for, but that this coming Messiah was going to be a priest, so they show up with frankincense. Very, very valuable oils, or very, very, it's a, it's a resin that comes from a tree in that part of the world, and they, and they scrape the resin, um, they have to scrape it carefully not to kill the tree, and then they, they boil it down in, into its oil form. To this day, it's extremely expensive. I mean, hard to create. There's no way to fast forward the process. But all the priests, at least of the Jewish temple, were founded in frankincense. And then finally, maybe they knew enough from Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isn't it sad? Have you noticed how so many Christmas celebration songs, you just read the words like a poem, they sound like pure celebration, but when we sing them, they carry a minor key. You ever notice that? I think that's part of that is meant to capture this. The Christmas time for us is a time of joyous celebration. And a sword will pierce our own hearts. And here we have that. You bring, they knew to bring king, uh, gold for a king and frankincense for a priest and myrrh for a dead body. Myrrh is what you wrap a dead body in. And here you have these men knew well enough to bring myrrh. Can you imagine again being Mary? And they show up and they have their big parade and they show up and they kneel before your son and they say, we know you're going to need this gold because you're a king and we know you're going to need this, this frankincense because you're a priest and we know you're going to need this myrrh because you're a dead man. <laughs> and yet that's exactly what's happening here. In fact, we know from the book of John that his body was wrapped in myrrh. Maybe it was the same myrrh. Maybe Mary had kept it all that time. Warned in a dream again, Joseph fled to Egypt with the baby Yeshua and Mary and without a moment to spare, it seems. Good thing they had a bunch of gold and frankincense to sell to survive the trip so as Herod realized the wise men had avoided him he went they went back east and he sent some soldiers to kill the children of Bethlehem so here's our question are we sitting on the blocks are we ready for him to show up are we eager to serve could you be any more prepared to act than being up on your toes your fingers down waiting for that sound to go consider Isaiah 40 31 the first passage many of you thought of when you heard we were going to be talking about waiting but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Some would say the running and the walking are during the waiting. And of course, that's possible, as we've discussed last week. However, I think this specific passage is more focusing on the word renew. They shall renew their strength. While they wait, they renew. And when they renew, when the waiting is over, when it comes time, they soar. They sprint. They walk. They run. They take advantage of the opportunity while they're waiting to rest and to prepare. So prepared to wait and ready to stop waiting. If supply chain and snowpocalypse and things like this haven't told you to be prepared to take care of your family, I don't know what to do for you. If you're not prepared, you're not waiting well. But how much more significant is the idea of being prepared to give a reason for the hope? If you're not prepared to talk with family and with friends about what Jesus Christ has done, then we're not waiting very well. If we're still not ready after years and years and years. Sometimes when I go speak, I speak as though I'm an atheist. Um, it's really a fun experience. I only do it with young people. Adults can't handle it. 
Um, and when I go to, I'm not kidding, it's ugly. I've tried it once or twice, and I just, no, never again. But I go and prepare, and I speak as though I'm an atheist, and the students do really well. But the question the atheist asks them in the skit is, okay, this should be the easy one. This is the, this is the 20-foot arc slow pitch for you, right? Christians, here you go. Why should I become a Christian? And what's amazing is how bad some of the answers are, how poorly thought out they are, how clearly people are now pulling out their phone, Googling the question. If you don't know how to answer a question like, why should I become a Christian? You're not waiting very well, much less looking for those opportunities. The last thing we're going to talk about next week is waiting on the Lord coming back. Every time we take communion, we claim that's what we're doing, right? That we're waiting for him until he comes back. And this seems significant. We don't want to get done with Advent until we talk about the second Advent. So next week, this is part of it. Are we prepared even to wait? That's another form of preparation, as you'll see in this parable. Stand with me, if you will. During this time, when we do, we're going to have a little time of invitation here in a moment, right after I read this. The hope is that, that God is is challenging you with something, that the Spirit is, is working on your heart, that you're listening to what the Spirit has to say. That, that the Spirit is saying, here's how you need to be preparing better, or here's how you need to be trusting in me more, or here's what it looks like for you to wait. And it's not always behavioral. Sometimes it's just our hearts. Whatever that is, that you're waiting on God's provision, not your own ability to create your own provision. I don't, I don't know what that looks like in your life, and you don't know what it looks like in mine necessarily, but, but we need to be asking the Lord to teach us and listening and watching for what He has for us. That's the assumption during these times is that you may want to come up here and pray about that or head over in the corner and pray with somebody or, or with someone here or someone out there in the audience, or you may need to just kneel where you are, or you need to sing and, and celebrate like we'll do in just a moment. If you've already been part of the, the welcome home process and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family just in time for Christmas dinner, you could come and do that, and we'd love for you to do that as well this morning during this time, if you've already been through that. Um, but, but mainly just listen. Listen to what the Lord has said. Let me read this to close out our time. In Matthew 25, 1-13, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took out their lamps, they took no oil with them. But as the, wise, as the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with them to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let us wait and prepare together.